0: .NET Rocks episode 852 with guest Cord Davis. Recorded live Thursday, February 28, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Teller, offering the best in developer tools and support, and by Franklins.net, makers of Gesture Pack. A powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at GesturePAK.com And by Diatom, developers of the .NET Rocks mobile app. Available now for Windows Phone 7, iPhone, and Android phones. And now, here are Carl and
1: Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. How's it
0: going, buddy? I am well sir I have decided to read a very current paper on quantum cryptography because my head has not hurt enough lately I was going to say you know of course you have <laughs> <laughs> I you know I I there are very few scientific papers that I actually step into a trepidation but let me tell you this one right up there yeah. this is serious business and I'm really trying to get my head around Uh, some of the single photon mechanics they're using because this is real product now. They're actually talking about applied quantum cryptography to protect military information. That's going to be a good show. And this comes right out of Los Alamos. I mean, from the guys who brought you the nuclear bomb, quantum cryptography.
1: Right, right. Well, uh, that sounds interesting. I don't have anything that interesting to report, but (laughs) let's, uh, let's get going with Better Know Framework. Awesome. What do you got, buddy? Well, in honor of our guest today, uh, I went looking, found some news. There's oh. a little bit of news in the open source community and uh, about Hadoop and Red Hat. Red Hat um, is teaming with Intel for open source big data innovations. This is their press release at tinyurl.com big data red hat. And uh, it's just from the 26th of February. So, brand new. Brand new. So, they're going to make plugins for uh, Hadoop.
0: On Apache and that's all cool. of that. Some good stuff there. Yeah, well, it just shows how mainstream Hadoop technology is coming now that everybody's starting to implement it everywhere.
1: Yeah, and that's the point, right? As we speak, news
0: is being made about this. Yeah, you bet.
1: So uh, who's talking to us,
0: Rachel? Well, funny you should bring up the whole Hadoop thing, because I grabbed a comment off of show 839. That's the one we did ah. with Andrew Brust, where we talked about big data. Yeah. Although we, he was very much focused on, you know, the business intelligence side, bringing the tools together. And we did dig into Hadoop fairly heavily. And uh, Peter Newhook wrote a comment that said, uh, In the show, you talked about running Hadoop on a cluster of user machines. Hadoop suffers from some issues when nodes sporadically go on and offline. But there's been some research in running a map reduce job when nodes come online for only a short period of time. So it's called Moon Map Reduce on Opportunistic Environments. Hmm. And was the topic of an academic paper in 2009 provides the link, which I'll include in the show notes uh, with Hadoop running on nearly all Windows machines. There may be an interesting opportunity to use all those unused cycles sitting on users' desks. Hmm. Which is a cool idea. I mean, I I was talking about when we were talking about Hadoop. I was talking about how we were converting load test machines to Hadoop nodes yeah. for our monthly runs at Strange Loop, which was a very temporary implementation. It would be about a day that we would do that. Yeah. So it wasn't really stuff coming and going, and they weren't uh, yeah, so they weren't uh, Windows workstations at all. But I appreciate the idea that we could start doing Hadoop in the background of other machines just to expand our web. Hmm. Although these days with the cloud, it's just so easy. You know, it light is. up the instance, run it, let it go, pay for it. What's the big deal? Right. Either way, uh, you know, I don't have to agree with you. I appreciate your your insight. And we'll certainly provide the link to Moon, which is an interesting idea about expanding uh, Hadoop's utilization on opportunistic environments. So a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com. And before we go any further, we need to tell you that Pluralsight provides
1: comprehensive developer training online They have over 400 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, releasing 12 to 15 new courses every month, offering a free 10-day trial for uh, 200 minutes of access to their library. Pluralsight offers a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything and everything on the Microsoft stack, including courses on big data by Andrew Brust. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce our guest today. Cord Davis is a former principal consultant with cap Gemini and has spent nearly twenty years providing business strategy, analysis, and technical consulting to over a hundred organizations of all sizes, including Autotask, Microsoft, Intel, Sisters of Mercy Healthcare, Nike, Bonneville Power Administration, Northwest Energy Alliance. Bill Melinda Gates Foundation, Western digital, Fluke Merricks Roadway Express, and Gardenburger maybe you 've heard of a few of them, integrating a professional background in telecommunications and an academic background in philosophy, he brings passionate curiosity, the rigor of analysis, and a love of how technology can help us do the things we really want to do better, faster, and easier. A formerly trained workgroup facilitator, he holds a BA in philosophy from Reed College and professional certifications in communication, systems modeling, and enterprise transformation. Welcome, Cord. And I got to say, you are the first philosophy major we've ever had on this show. (laughs) You may be the first philosophy major that I've ever met who has a job.
2: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I I suspect there are more than a few developers out there with uh, backgrounds in, in philosophy. Yeah.
0: Philosophy and art history. Yeah, last time mm-hmm. I looked, the only thing you did with a philosophy degree was teach philosophy.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get that question a lot, actually. It's uh, it's really the analysis part of it that uh, comes in most handy in technical environments.
1: Oh, definitely, definitely. I can see that a lot. So this is a big data show, but not your typical big data show, right? We're sort of talking about the ethics of big data.
2: Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the things that um, we had gotten uh, in, the, in the pre-intro onto discussing was this notion that um, developers really have an opportunity to not only um, engage the business side of operations a little more heavily, but to really bring their knowledge to the table. And it's an opportunity to, you know, sort of explore in technical detail what their data handling practices actually are. So that they can help business uh, folks understand really what um, what the risks are, uh, what the possibilities are, um, what kinds of opportunities there are, um, but also to really inform those value based and ethical discussions on the on the business side of the house, which is an interesting position for developers to be in because they have that domain knowledge right at their fingertips
1: yeah are, are there issues with big data ethics that that you do not see with non big data ethics I mean do we have ethics around data but right. uh, is it just more so with big data or are there specific uh, issues that big data brings
2: yeah that, that's an interesting question and I think you know there's there's lots of discussion about the the three V's of big data the you know volume variety and velocity and really what constitutes big data versus just data and and so on and so forth and uh, i really think that distinction is a little spurious it's it's really not that Uh, Critical to the ethical questions. What's critical is there's, you know, there's just so much of uh, processing capability and storage capability and query capability available now. And the amount of that information that's being generated gives organizations abilities to do things with that data faster, you know, sort of faster, stronger, better than they have ever been able to before. And, you know, there's a there's sometimes an objection to the topic that comes up that says, for example, and, and this is true, you know, credit card companies have been tracking our buying behavior for you know thirty or forty years now, mm-hmm. and you know, there's there's really nothing that's been done uh, about that that seems unethical. What's interesting about that is one of the reasons I think that's true is because. Credit card companies haven 't been doing anything with that data that we didn't expect them to do with it right so you know there's something interesting about the fact that if I buy a particular product online and that company then sells that buying transaction information to another organization which then pairs that with some other online browsing behavior about me, then all of a sudden there's a new fact about me out in the world that i didn 't really expect there to be, mm-hmm. and what organizations choose to to do with that is potentially uh, bothersome. Um, there are well-known sort of aspects um, to these questions, and one of the things that um, I point out in the book is uh, there's really at least four um, aspects to this, uh, identity, privacy, ownership, and reputation. And a lot of times, individuals or organizations are concerned about one aspect of those in particular. But it's really the constellation and the relationship between those four things that um, takes the broader view of of kind of understanding what the ethical risks are.
0: Yeah, I got to sort of think the classical thing about big data is that unique find of data. The, The one that popped out to me right away is... You know, that Facebook is able to figure out you're pregnant before you've told anybody by <laughs> what you're searching and, you know, that behavior. Like, to me, there's the great ethical conundrum. We've derived an interesting point of data about you that you may not even know yourself or have certainly not revealed to anyone else.
2: Right,
1: yeah.
0: and don't wish to reveal it to, say, your children who look
1: at over your shoulder when you're, you know, browsing Facebook.
2: Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Um, There was, uh, you know, there's the... The well-known example that came out of the New York Times about uh, Target's behavioral marketing, relative to that exact question, and I read an article recently, you know, a few months ago, about uh, a data aggregation CEO who knows exactly, you know, what's capable and what's possible out there in the world, and said that um, one of the, one of the things that his behavior has changed is he now buys all of his fast food using cash because he doesn't want that information to get back to his health insurance company. Sure, and And, you know, just the realization that there are now, uh, you know, entire organizations whose whose whole business model is built around taking disparate sources of data, aggregating them to complete as uh, full and detailed a picture about you as possible, and then turning that around and selling it to different organizations for different purposes.
0: I mean, this is where we get into the real moralistic issue, which is, the whole—if you're not paying for the product, you are the product, right? Exactly. Yeah. There's an ethics to that. Period. That just what are what are people doing with your information? You know, when you check that box, okay, without ever reading that hundred pages.
2: Well, and this is one of the other challenges around that is, um, and you know, I, I firmly think this is an ethical issue. There was an article in, I believe, The Atlantic that came out last year from uh, Alexis Madrigal who referenced some uh, computer science research, I believe, out of Carnegie Mellon. And some uh, computer scientists went out and did some research and uh, came up with a a number that said, if we all actually read all of the terms of service and privacy policies that we encounter in our daily uh, work lives and, and personal lives, it would take an average of 76 working days a year wow. in order to in order to read all of them which makes you wonder if we actually all stopped to read and understand all of those the impact on american productivity would be <laughs> large enough that i believe that you know many many corporations would make them much simpler to actually uh, understand
1: have you seen the scroogled video
2: no, I don't think I have. So
1: this is a viral video that actually Microsoft put out, which is very unlike Microsoft, but uh, if you go to scroogled.com, uh S-C-R-O-O-G-L-E-D.com, they uh, it's a campaign for Microsoft to push outlook.com. But uh, yeah. basically they're they're saying uh, right here on the website, Google goes through every Gmail that sent or received looking for keywords so that they can target Gmail users with paid ads. Yep. And there's no way to opt out of this invasion of your privacy. And then, of course, they say Outlook.com is different. We don't go through your email right. to sell ads. So, But some of the interesting things that they have on this page are quotes from uh, Google chairman Eric Schmidt um, You know, in articles and in video. One of them is, says, there's what I call the creepy line. The Google policy on a lot of things is to get right up to the creepy line and not cross it. <laughs> so there there it is right there the ethics of big data you know played out in in a website today i mean this is there that, that's exactly what we're talking about
2: Yeah absolutely the um the entire impetus for the book uh came about in through my consulting practice with organizations that were beginning to use big data and this scenario played itself out over and over again um there would be a technologist of some sort of a DBA or a developer or, uh, uh, you know, some kind of architect who would be in the room with some product, uh, managers or some product marketing folks. And, and the technologist would say, Hey, by the way, we can do this kind of thing now with our data because we have the capability, um, you know, through Hadoop and MapReduce and, you know, all sorts of data aggregation tools and, uh, so on and so forth. And, you know, this is pretty cool. And one of the product marketing people would say, that's awesome. Our customers are going to love that. And another product marketing person would say, yeah, but that's kind of creepy, isn't it? And the first product marketing person would go, well, no, it's not. It's awesome. And the second person would say, yeah, it's creepy. And they would go back and forth and back and forth. And what I realized seeing that play out over and over again is that in the absence of a common vocabulary of what, Uh, ethical and value-oriented behavior is in the context of big data, Mm -hmm. everybody reverts to their own moral code. And the reality is that's a great place to start because that's all we have really, right? Um, I value things and you value things and what we need to understand is what we value together in this particular um, realm or, or environment and we don't have that yet. And one of the interesting things about uh, the relationship between ethics and compliance is uh, legal compliance statutes are, you know, written and expressed through legislation. And as we all know, legislation falls far behind the pace of, you know, innovation and in technology. So big data technology has advanced so far that we can now do things. For example, it's perfectly legal for target to be able to look at the information that they have about your historical buying behavior, and determine whether or not you're pregnant and therefore send out, you know, specific targeted messaging to you about specific products. Uh, and so while it's while it's quite legal, it's a little creepy because that's information that, you know, is typically de- deemed uh, particularly private by you. So these questions are being raised every day in, you know, normal mainstream businesses. And yeah,
1: I mean, some people might say, what's the big deal anyway, that Target knows I'm pregnant and that they that I get an ad, you know, and and as long as they're, they're discreet about it, and they don't, you know, put it up on billboards, you know, that so and so has this, you know, medical condition or whatever. what is the danger that, you know, the line that, is crossed, that creepy line. What is that creepy line? And what what kinds of things, you know, if there were no legislation or if there were no ethics involved, right. would we wake up one day to find ourselves uh uh witnessing?
2: Right. I think that's a great question and it's one that um in the book I go to great pains not to answer for you as an individual, because I don't know what your values are. Um, but I do have an anecdote, which I think illustrates the range of possibilities. And uh, it goes something like this. So it's it's an undisputed fact now that Facebook owns the largest database of human behavior in the history of mankind. Mm. They just know lots and lots of facts about lots and lots of people. And uh, so what I ask people to do is... Imagine a spectrum from good to evil with Hitler on one end and Mother (laughs) Teresa on the other. (laughs) And I I don't, I don't, and then, and then what I say is on that spectrum, imagine what any individual might do if they had access to that information. Now, I don't know the answer to that, but I do think that we ought to be talking about it a lot more than we are. Yeah,
1: I agree. I agree. And I mean, you've obviously thought of some of the scenarios. I mean, uh, The big problem, I think, is when uh, the information is used for nefarious purposes. Um,
2: Yeah, I think – yeah. But but
1: on the other hand, like, you know, people are afraid of uh, this. – we're a little overboard here in in America, I think, because people are afraid, you know, that their their children are at risk if they put, you know, uh, having on vacation at such and such a camp or whatever – or, right. you know, or mom and dad aren't home and somebody's going to come in to the house because they know mom and dad aren't home. Right. But I think it was you, Richard, that told me there's been no case of that happening. Like, there's been no crimes reported where somebody went on, you know, got stalked
0: a child on Facebook or whatever. And then it, was it you who was telling me that? Yeah, it was one of the internet safety things you are saying. In every case where you found a child uh, uh, with a stranger... They may, they've communicated in some form and the child has made a choice to connect with that stranger. It's not been a blind stalk where the child had no idea that person was out there. They appeared out of nowhere. You know, there was a communication path and there was a poor decision made by the child. And at that point you realize, well, the internet's nothing new then. They've been making poor decisions like that a long, for a long time. Right. The 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 blind stalk is almost a mythical thing. And uh, and also, this gets back to the idea that uh,
1: if you ask any person on the street or go into a pub and say, you know, do you feel safer today than you did when you were a child? You know, the answer is right. no. I feel like the world is a much more dangerous place. There's more murders. There's more crime. Because that's the way it seems. But, you know, if you look at the facts, violent crime in particular has been on a steady decline ever since we began recording it. In right. The, you know, in the... In the dark ages, I have no idea when it started. But since it's been (laughs) recorded, uh, it's been on a steady decrease. And it seems that with the advent of information technology, starting with Gutenberg, that, uh, you know, the more people know about these things, the the less there is of it. And uh, although at the same time, the more we know about it, the perception is that there's more of it.
2: Yeah, that's interesting, and, and and I think that's generally true. The dark corner, the unknown, unknown in in big data ethics, I think is again around this question of um, sort of unintended usages. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea being, you know, you know, I think the the buying fast food with cash example is is a good one. You know, there are already health um, in, health and insurance companies that are. Uh, buying aggregated data from other organizations that um, help them set their actuarial tables which influences you know how much you pay for car insurance and health insurance and life insurance um, and you know it's not necessarily the case that uh, those things shouldn't be uh, sort of contributing information to that uh, but it's not that we expected it to be and we might behave differently if we knew um, kind of what the what the outcome of that particular knowledge or 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 information was going to be.
0: Well, one could argue then that buying fast food for cash represents insurance fraud.
2: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) interesting. Yeah, I suppose you're right. Um, There's an interesting uh, fact about uh, Progressive, the car insurance company. Um, They will provide you with a discount if you attach a monitoring device to your car and uh, and I don't know the details about this but one of my understanding is that one of the guidelines or rules which has a large impact on the uh rate that you pay uh, or the discount that you get on your rate, is uh, what hours of the day that you drive. So if you right. drive between the hours of 11 p.m. and 6 a.m. at night, which is uh, apparently riskier than than other times, um, that r- will significantly reduce the discount that you get.
0: Wow. Well, and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, the, you, in the in actual tables are about looking at what behaviors increase risk, and if you don't have those behaviors uh you should be paying less for your insurance you are a lower risk it's right. so funny right. because there are two ways that you
1: can you know like mother teresa and hitler and and everything in between but it could could totally make for a a better world because on you know if it's used for the powers of good you have people behaving better because they know that uh, they're being watched so to speak well
0: this you know what this is this is the russian dash cam thing yeah you're right right yeah so the other side of this (laughs) is you stop paying cash for your junk food and you stop buying junk food right right which was actually the goal really yeah right is you know the whole thing with the russian dash cam is once people know they're on camera they behave better but is it is that a good
1: thing though i mean it's a good thing because you know you're raising the behave the good behavior level of the average citizen but is that a really a good thing i don't know
0: certainly presses against the aspects of privacy
1: uh certainly does yeah 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 and you know in an increasingly online world i mean google glass right and later this year there's going to be Thousands of people walking around with Google Glass glasses and potentially recording you, you know, and maybe streaming that video somewhere else or maybe to YouTube or whatever without... You know, you'll, you, you'll see that they turned their recorder on, but still, you have to be prepared for that all the time. It's going to be increasingly difficult to be a Ted Kaczynski later this year, I
0: think. <laughs> <laughs> right. I Maybe mean, that's you know, your next book, Cord, The Ethics of Google Glass. If you want to yeah. live
1: off the grid, you know, and be off the grid, you basically have to completely drop out of a technological society. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, makers of Telerik Reporting. Every business app comes with a requirement for visualizing data, but why bury yourself in coding endless charts and grids when you can add interactive data visualizations quickly and codelessly? And what if you have to export and print these visualizations? There's no need to code all this. Try Telerik Reporting the powerful ad hoc reporting solution for your web, desktop, and cloud applications. It's the easy way to create stylish, interactive .NET reports in a fraction of the time. It supports relational and cube data sources, report embedding, and exporting to PDF, HTML, Excel, and Word, all in a single seamless package. Visit Telerik.com reports to download your free trial copy. Telerik Reporting. It's fast, easy, and interactive.
2: From my perspective, I think one of the, one of those aspects of big data ethics is going to drive a lot of that um, formalization of the legislation, and that's data ownership. So the question is, um, who actually owns that data? Speaking of, you know, uh, you being the product, um, we actually give away our ownership rights in many terms of service and privacy policies for a lot of the online SaaS and, and other web applications that we use. And... Um, There's been some interesting um, legal challenges in the last year or so that have come up. Um, One is the Sierra Club is actually suing Orange County in Southern California to provide access to uh, government um, uh, GIS data. And the idea is that because that information was developed using taxpayer dollars, it should be available and accessible to all taxpayers, and sure. Orange Orange County was not making that so. And in fact, they were charging a very large fee and um, making it only available, I believe, to um, certain investment uh, organizations or, or real estate developers. And so, the Sierra Club took them to court and said, "Hey, this is you know this is public data, and therefore we should have access to it as members of the public." Um, And, you know, conversely, so if I'm wearing a pair of Google glasses and I'm, you know, recording you doing some kind of, um, let's say, street performance, you're busking on the corner or uh, you're dancing in a club or you're, you know, doing something of interest that, you know, I wanted to record can I then turn around and uh, actually monetize that in some fashion or use that in an advertisement or in some other way, again, in which you did not expect or intend for that either recording to be not only made but to be used in that fashion?
0: Right. Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Ah, it must be that happy time again.
1: That's right. It's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to a lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And today's winner is Frank Eckert. Ah, congratulations, Frank. Congratulations, Golf indeed. Golf for you. Golf clap in. Uh, Frank wins the Telerik Devcraft Complete Collection. That's everything that Telerik does in one box. It's good stuff. It's a $2,000 nice. value. If you don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about the fan club. Go to and click on the big Get Free Stuff button. Uh, answer a few questions and join the join the fan club. we have f- thousands of members and every show we give something away and every December we give away five grand worth of technology uh, Last year, Rob Corbett got a beautiful machine developer machine spec'd out by Richard and built by a local guy our local company and uh, we'd like to ask our guests if you had five thousand dollars cord to spend on technology today, what would you buy
2: ooh. I would buy a much bigger monitor. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about
1: geeks that won't buy themselves a big monitor? Like they'll don't buy a know. big machine before a big monitor.
2: Yeah, it's a good it's a great question. I mean, you know, I, I have a I have a pretty solid twenty two inch widescreen, but um, you know, I would love to have a two or three foot, you know, high res
1: Is it the wife acceptance factor? Like you come home with a bigger monitor, you say, I need a bigger screen, and it's kinda of like a luxury
2: yeah it yeah. could be it's you know it, 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 the the challenge for me of course in and, and I know every geek out there has this is like it's actually a useful tool, like there's some benefit to it, but it feels like such an indulgence that sometimes I right. just can't justify the expense
0: yeah well, I've certainly come to believe that more monitors better like in terms of productivity, the more screen space to have, the more you can work on Although oh, yeah. Windows eight yeah. really fights against that <laughs> I don't know, I love Windows eight on multiple monitors. I just stay on. in the desktop mode. <laughs> All right. I, I want to jump back to uh, before the, the prize draw there, Cord, because you were talking about the whole photography thing, especially like with the Google glasses. Yeah. Uh, because there's a the whole set of laws around public photography. If you are out in public, you can be photographed. That's
2: right. Right, right. Well, and there's, you know, there are, there's some interesting challenges around that relative to law enforcement activity now, and, and there are both local, state, and national uh, distinctions that are being made, and there's no really clear consensus on whether or not it's lawful to record law enforcement officers in the execution of their duties. So in, in some jurisdictions, you can actually have your camera confiscated if you're recording law enforcement making an arrest. In other jurisdictions, it's perfectly legal. And so this is just another area in which there's a lot of sort of ethical and value-based conflicts out there because, you know, in the absence of that common vocabulary and expectation for what we value relative to data usage and capture, um, there's just a a lot of conflict out there.
0: And when you get to – I mean, we might as well pick on Facebook. They're the biggest. You sign on to Facebook, you have this agreement that basically they have a right to do whatever they want with what you put on Facebook.
2: That's pretty much the agreement,
0: yep. Which, is which, if you consider Facebook a public place, which essentially it is, doesn't seem all that outrageous. I'm with you that I think the legislators are approaching a point where they're going to start saying there are requirements for folks putting out these agreements to say, you have to make it very clear to someone what the ownership of content is, and so right. forth. Right, right. Uh, and I think the bigger issue I have with Facebook is, I, is this whole sense that you delete your account, nothing's actually deleted. Your oh, stuff never right. goes away. That's right.
2: Right. There was an interesting story about that. uh came out a few months back, at maybe maybe six months or so. Um, so as, as people are probably generally aware, um, privacy laws in the European Union are much more strict than they are in the U.S., Right. And they have um, they have this requirement that says uh, any individual user of any online web application can request the data that that company holds about them, and that company is required to send it to them. And so, because um, Facebook has an office in Ireland, um, they're subject to this rule, and right. uh, which in 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 Ireland is particularly strong. And so there was a test case. A guy said, all right, well, I want to know everything that Facebook knows about me. And not, not only did it take them several months to comply with the request, but it ended up being something like 2,100 pages long nice. of information. It, it turns out they actually log and monitor every single activity that you take on that site when you're logged in and that so every every keystroke every mouse click every page turn every uh, you know image viewed all of that information is, is logged and monitored
1: and don't they also look at what you're doing outside of the Facebook page on other pages as well
2: there are there are many. There are many tie-ins to that. Um, Facebook has agreements with with lots of other behavioral and, and online targeted marketing organizations. That if you are logged into Facebook, um, they can actually track your online browsing behavior across many, many, many large uh, and well-known mainstream websites. This is why, for example, if you are um, reading an article on ESPN.com and then you go to CNN.com, there might be an advertisement for um, professional sports tickets that shows up in your sidebar
0: yeah now i just saw some dumbness related to exactly that i bought an album last night was it a franklin brothers album well it was not i already have all of those (laughs) (laughs) but it was a a, a jazz you'll be happy to know good and uh which i found totally randomly it was sort of somebody mentioned his name i'd never heard it before i went and found the name found the album it was five dollars i bought it right just reflex set of mp3 files forget about it again Guess what ad I see on every web page today? What? That album. Yeah. Well, you've already bought it, though. That's kind of dumb. I know. So, a clearly being tracked and being tracked stupidly, right? And then they're putting up the one ad you really didn't need to put up. Exactly. (laughs) Hey, already got it.
2: Yeah. Are you typically logged into Facebook during the day?
0: Well, you know. It's not open at the moment, but, you know, bottom line is I'm on auto-login with Facebook, which means my cookie's live. So, yeah, any right. site that's got cross-login with Facebook's going to pick it up. And, yep. it, you know, I'm also surrounded by machines. I don't like working from one computer, so i quite amused the fact that I can go to the same page on a different computer with a different set of cookies and get a different result.
2: Yeah, that's yeah, funny. that is interesting. Yeah, there's, you know, I mean, there's, you know, it's, it's not all doom and gloom, of course. And, you know, I think, you know, our intuition, especially as technologists, is that, you know, this is inherently a good thing. And there's lots of great examples out there. And I think one of my favorite ones is, um, there's actually two, two in, sort of the same realm. Um, one is that the National Weather Service is starting to get actually a lot better using big data technologies at predicting the weather in microclimates. Uh-huh. So in, in small areas of the country which have particular uh, topological or terrain or, or other kinds of weather inducing um, structure that, you know, affects temperature and precipitation and all those sorts of things. And uh, it, it turns out, of course, that, you know, obviously one of the, one of the groups of people that are very interested in that are farmers. Yeah. you know It turns out to be very important as to how much uh, it's going to rain or, or whether there's going to be a tornado or anything like that. And uh, big data technologies are advancing rapidly in that field. And um, there's another interesting kind of funny one that uh, people roll out with respect to the uh, volume of uh, big data being developed, which is something like uh, they are developing <laughs> – Cow monitor chips. Whoa. So that so that you can monitor things like I, I assume where they are and you know uh how often they're moving around and um you know, maybe how much they weigh or, or something like that. <laughs> um well the-
1: No cow is safe.
2: <laughs> no cow is safe, exactly. <laughs> Um, But one of the interesting factoids around that is apparently there are about 85 million cows in the United States, and they develop something like 200 megabytes of data per day. And so, and I might be getting these numbers somewhat wrong, but uh, if if you do the math, that turns out to be something like 19 petabytes a year of cow data. (laughs) Oh,
0: my God. Uh, I actually looked at a case study around uh, tracking cows uh, in the cloud. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. We did this. uh, Uh, We ended up not doing it as a show because of other concerns. Yeah. Uh, But uh, because of of EU privacy laws, those cows have privacy. (laughs) That data was protected. That's why we didn't do that show. That's right. The cows are protected by privacy laws. No kidding. It's the EU, man.
2: So do we have to? <laughs> we have to cut that segment out. <laughs>
0: no cows
1: were harmed in the recording of DotNet Rocks today.
2: Right, exactly. Um, there's another sort of more human-based example that I think is really interesting. Um, so the brainiacs at AT and T Labs in New Jersey uh, realized that um, everybody that has an AT and T mobile device um, is basically creating. Um, huge amounts of traffic pattern data. Mm -hmm. And so what they went through is um, they, and now now we're coming up against the question of anonymization versus Mm de-anonymization, but um, they scrubbed a bunch of data and offered that information up to urban planners in New Jersey. And one of the interesting outcomes of that is Emergency services have gotten better at predicting where they should drive things like fire trucks and ambulances. Wow! Because they understand, you know, where traffic is going to be heavy and where it's going to be light during certain periods of the day, based on this um, mobile phone data, which decreases response times for emergency services, which everybody thinks is a good thing.
0: Right. Yeah. So I mean, now we're talking big data saving lives. Right, exactly. At, at the same time, pressing against a certain level of privacy. We, we could save lives if we have uh, an idea of where everybody is all of the time.
2: And of course, you know, the the privacy and identity question there is, is pressing. I mean, I think many folks are aware of the Netflix Prize example where uh, folks were able to actually identify specific individuals through a supposedly anonymized data set. Um, and there's been... Oh, I would need to look up this resource, but um, there's been some actually uh, fairly detailed mathematical analysis that says there are really only, if you can capture three pieces of information um, through any variety of data sets and correlate them together, you can identify a specific individual, and those are gender, birth date, and zip code. So if you, can, if you can find the gender, birth date, and zip code of any particular individual, you will know who they are. Wow. huh? Which is a little frightening.
0: That's sufficient uniqueness at the 6 billion or 7 billion population level.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: So it seems to me where we're headed here is a discussion about legislation.
2: I think that's a really good point. Um, one of the things that I talk about quite a bit is, is the need for legislation to sort of catch up to the pace of technology. And the thing that's going to really motivate and drive that is conversation and discussion. And so the whole impetus for the book is really to say, again, hey, you know, I don't know the answers to all of these things. I don't know what you value. I don't know, you know, in some cases, what I'm going to value. I think, right. um, you know, I'm going to need to make a decision based on... uh advances in technology and, and changes in usage patterns. And, you know, I, I need to make a decision on a case-by-case basis as well as uh, so does everybody else. But the thing is, we don't have a mechanism yet for talking about that. And that's the thing that I'm really interested in, in creating a, a, a motivation around.
0: The concern here has got to be if we have a, a Pearl Harbor type event around big data uh, release, we'll yep. end up, with reactionary legislation that is harmful, mm.
2: yep exactly,
0: yeah,
1: so it's just so difficult to consider all of this stuff when there's no laws on the books, and you're we're essentially at the mercy of the ethics of the owners of said big data to use it to you know morally.
2: Yeah, I mean, at this point, it's really the wild, wild west out there. And, you know, much like the robber barons of the, you know, early 19th century, like organizations that, I mean, there are actually, uh, again, entire organizations whose business model is around creating open data markets. So they're, you know, they're capturing data and they're selling that on the open market to the highest bidder. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Interesting that anonymization of acquisition makes it even more difficult to uh to be ethical with. You know, at least Facebook's being pretty ethical because they are under heavy scrutiny. We know where it's come from, we know where we've put it. Uh we may not understand the extent of it, but it certainly, you know, puts them in a certain position. Yeah. Uh it's soon as you as soon as you've acquired it and nobody knows you've acquired it that I think this stuff's going to be badly used.
2: Well, and I, you know, I think there's an interesting argument to be made. I saw recently, um, you know, just a, a couple of weeks or a month or two ago, um, you know, uh, Congress um, extended uh, FISA, which allows them to look at your email without a warrant. And what's interesting about that is that basically was passed by Congress with very little mention or very little uproar in the public sphere. But when Facebook changes their privacy policy, yeah. that makes front page news in the New York Times. And, you know, what's mm. interesting to me about that is just the sort of um, general lack of awareness in the sort of, I'll say, non technical public uh, about what's happening relative to their information out in the world. I mean, the, you know, the government can literally look at your email without a warrant. Um, and, you know, the question there, I think, is one of, you know, what is your legal expectation of privacy in that regard? And, again, there's no real clear answer to that.
0: Yeah. Well, it's certainly not my main it's, – it's something I talk about when I do internet safety talks. It's just say, hey, the reality of, of email is it's not private at all. Don't, yeah. don't fool yourself for a second. But most people yeah. just don't get that because it's called email. They look at it as mail right. wrapped right. in an envelope, you know, right.
1: somehow private. Well, again, you know, we've uh, talked to Jonathan Zook from the uh, Association for Competitive Technology Act. And, yeah. uh, and, you know, this is an organization that if you're concerned about this kind of stuff as a developer they need your help in uh, talking to legislators so that they make the right decisions. And yes. uh, actonline.org, definitely get involved. We've talked about that many times.
0: So, Cord, if I'm a developer on a project where my company's starting to utilize big data or looking at the potential of it, what are the talking points? Where do I get started on having this conversation?
2: Yeah, I would really revert back to those four aspects, and and I would just be willing to ask the question, you know, Uh, It's not just privacy, and it's not just identity. It's identity, privacy, ownership, and reputation. Mm -hmm. And those four aspects really encompass, at least today, what we know about how the usage of big data or or, uh, particular organizations' big data handling practices are going to influence and impact um, specific individuals out in the world.
0: And I do get a sense that you've got to deal with the creepiness factor. So it's, it's like the uncanny valley in building robots.
2: That's right. That's, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, I think there's this uh, there's this intuition that we have um, about what's creepy, and you know we have a we have an actual visceral reaction to it. The the hairs on the back of our arms raise, and we get kind of uncomfortable on our chairs, and we're like. You know that's that's not quite right, and and I think one way to think about that is um, that that comes about when we see data being used in ways which we didn't expect. Right, yeah. So, you know, if a particular user is expecting a particular return or a particular benefit from a a specific usage of a bit of data that they share, and then an organization is turning around and using that data in a way that they didn't make clear they were going to use it or that it was clear that the user didn't expect it to be used in that fashion, then it starts to edge into that creepy world. And, you know, that's the point at which I feel like people People need to start being willing to be uh, uh, to being willing to ask explicit questions and just to raise the topic and, and just to start talking about it.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I've seen a few apps come and go uh, where th- the app started learning more about you than you realized you knew. I think at any time that software <laughs> right. spits out information <laughs> about your behavior. That you don't understand, you just dove straight into the creepy zone.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) And there was an iPhone app I was reading about, and it disappeared pretty quickly. But it's like, you turn this on, it just uses tracking, and within a week it knows where you live, where you work, where you usually buy gas, where you usually buy groceries. And it starts making recommendations. So it starts anticipating, I know roughly how much gas you've got because I've known where you've driven. So it's, hey, it's almost time for you to go get gas. The best price is over here, which seems like a good idea. Yeah. And it's creepy. It's creepy. Right? I never told you how much gas I had. Just because you've just counted how much I've driven between each fill, Right. it's still creepy. (laughs) There's that line. That's just really an interesting thing. That seems like a good idea when you write it out. And then, you know, as soon as it happened to you, you would be creeped. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> and I think that's going to be the hardest part of this conversation because I I get the InfoSec, privacy, PCI, you know, that's all stuff I've dealt with, that we want to protect this data and not have it stolen or leaked unintentionally. But it's when we could start producing information for our customers, quote, unquote, for our customers. Right. Right that they didn't expect, that I think we're going to dive straight into this line. And and again, it's not criminal. It's just a question of whether or not it's ethical. Well, you you nailed it, Richard.
1: It's when you're deducing information based on existing information. And you just pointed out a, a scenario where a piece of software knows when you're at a gas station and then it counts the miles that you've driven until you go back to the gas station. And the only thing it's assuming is that you filled up the tank each time. It doesn't know that. Yep. But based on those two things and the assumption that you fill up your tank when you get gas, it can tell how many miles per gallon you get, and then it can tell when you're almost empty and where the best price is. That, you know...
2: Yes, but, but within a year or two, I mean, if you think about the Internet of Things, your gas tank is going to have an IP address, and it's going to be able to actually determine and feed into... Um, you know other applications. Uh, the the Internet of Things is a is a, both a you know sort of utopian nirvana in my mind in terms of possibility and also a dystopian frightening future. It's well, like, yeah,
1: I always go back to the time machine. You know, what's your name, Weena? <laughs> you know, they're right. all just sitting <laughs> exactly, around. Yeah. They don't know what books are, and and everything's provided for them. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's scary. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET
0: application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days.
1: Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's component1spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you
0: bought the other. Right. Spread.net from component1. Smarter components for smarter developers. So, Cord, what's next for you? What are you working on?
2: Um, just uh, working on an update on the book, um, you know, in regular consulting gigs, Um. Just uh, you know, like everybody else, trying to make a living. Um, I think uh, you know what's what's really driving me and my interest around the topic is um, trying to find a way, like like with the act online folks, like trying to find a way to sort of raise public awareness of these questions and topics. Um, and again, it's the kind of thing you know. I don't I don't have all the answers for everybody. But I do think that you know I have some tools that are helpful for thinking about the questions, yeah. And I think it's you know I think it's I bring an important perspective to um, raising the topic itself. Um, I'm really glad you guys um, were interested to you know have me on and talk about it. Um, I was kind of curious. Um, I mean, do you have a sense for in your audience what some of the bigger questions or? Or you know, topics are that people talk about on a regular basis.
1: Well, we're going to find out. Um, we have a really great comments engine on the show, and oh,
0: okay, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see what the feedback looks like. That'll that'll be the questions coming forward from there. Okay, uh, that'll be cool. I do think we, we as technologists tend to be too enamored of the technology and and sometimes don't think of the consequences. I don't want to compare yeah. this to to Fermi and Teller and the nuclear bomb, but you know, right. the bottom line is. we're going to end up building things here that have unintended consequences.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: And I also, I really buy into your core thought that legislation is coming. It's got to. Yeah, let us not go down the path of of doing whatever we want with this and be on the wrong side of that legislation. We should be anticipating to some degree and uh, and be prepared for when it comes down, we we know what to do and how to react.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, this is part of, Uh, 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 actually a large part of my motivation for sort of what I think of as public discourse, which is you know... the great thing about democracy is, in theory, we get to help craft that legislation, right. Right? And, right? And, you know, the idea being, as technologists, I think we have a responsibility to help inform what's possible and what the risks and benefits are. I mean, the, you know, the subtitle of the book is Balancing Risk and Innovation. And, you know, we just we need to be more actively involved in, in helping to maintain that balance.
0: I, I do think building more success stories around big data, big data saving lives and genuinely helping Helping people and not being creepy is just going to help support the idea that we need this technology. This technology is for the benefit of mankind when used correctly.
2: Yep. No, I absolutely agree with that.
0: It's your foot. I'm I'm also thinking, Carl, of your experiences with ACT and how most legislators are slow, far removed from technology. Yeah. That having them try to understand big data is is especially challenging because we're still trying to get our heads around it.
1: Well, you know, it, all they really need to
0: do is just
1: think about the consequences and understand that, that, that is possible, right? So, uh, I don't think they need to understand the technology of it, but they do need to understand the possibilities of, you know, what, uh, what can happen to a society if, if these companies are allowed to just do whatever they want with this data. So I, I definitely again encourage people to the call to action here is to go to actonline.org, sign up, call up Jonathan, call up those guys, ask him uh, you know how they can utilize you as a technologist because you understand the technology, if you have any communication skills whatsoever, they can actually educate you and put you in front of senators and congressmen and legislators and, uh, and you know, add your voice because every voice counts.
0: And I just bought the Kindle version of Ethics of Big Data online for 10 bucks. Sounds like it's going to be a worthwhile read. Awesome. Hey, thanks very much. It's been a great show, Cord.
2: Well, I appreciate you guys having me, and uh, I look forward to seeing what the comments are on the site. I'm very, I'm very curious to see what um, people think and, and what kinds of questions are having these days.
0: Awesome.
1: We'll see you again on .dotnet Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. Eighteen- six- <arquitectures> <actress> Dot .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft Development Technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net.